good morning, afternoon, or evening, and welcome to the Bloody Disgusting Network. The following show is just horrifying. Beware. back to horror queers we're talking meta horror comedy we're talking mother-daughter drama and we're talking trace's love of tysa farmiga and i'm joe (laughs) and i'm trace and we're talking (laughs) betty davis eyes y'all and some hoots yeah i've got my oven mitts on i am ready to get this party started just let me know when you want to unleash the beast we're talking the final girls y'all and i gotta say okay uh, this will not be a Tessa Farmiga hate fest like The Quiet was for poor Camilla Bell. Um, God rest <laughs> her soul, but she's alive. Rest in peace, yeah. <laughs> I do want to get off the bat that, yes, I am not wild about Tessa Farmiga, and I don't particularly care for her in this movie, and that is all I will say on the subject. I'm not going to harp on it. Wow, okay. This will be the first time you just bury the axe and then walk away. Yeah, I just like, you know, I'm trying to get a more positive spin on my life, Joe, and just hating on (laughs) bland, dull actresses with no emotion uh, is just, you know, I'm over it now. Fair enough, fair enough. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But yeah, no, we're talking The Final Girls, and I'm really excited, because this is a movie that I think had a lot of... uh, a lot of hype built around it when it was coming out, and then it just didn't really get a wide release, and I think when I... Well, actually, okay, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself. We, we have a As guest always. on today's episode, y'all. <laughs> um, all right, everyone. So she is a contributor at the website Consequence of Sound, as well as the co-host of two of their podcasts, one of which is the Losers Club, the Stephen King podcast, and the second one is newer, and it's called Psychoanalysis, and it's a horror therapy podcast, and it's awesome. Please welcome Jen Adams. Hi. Thank you. Hey, Jen. How are you doing? I'm doing good. How are you guys? Doing okay. Yeah. 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 I think we're going to make it, man. <laughs> Maybe. 2021's going to be our year. Oh, my God. I thought 2020 was going to be my year, though. Is right. the thing. So I don't that. trust what I think anymore. <laughs> that meme was just a little too on the nose for me. That whole, like, start of 2020 and then, like, middle of 2020. I was like, folks, we're not even at the end of the year yet. I know. It's not even October. <laughs> well, it is now officially. Oh, oh, yes. oh, right. right. Yes, yes we're in the future now. Yeah, <laughs> I think the benefit of where we are now is that in April we were all like, "Cool, we'll we'll be fine when the summer's over." Whereas now we're like, "Okay, we're probably not going to be fine for at least another year." So we've like mentally yeah. adjusted, or at least hopefully mm. we have. Yeah. Sure, 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 sure. Yeah. Well, I have, so that's all that matters. <laughs> I mean, I get to wear lots of sweaters and sweatpants, so I'm, I'm happy. I wear my pajamas. <laughs> yeah, me too. Like, I've been working from home, and I just, I never want to go back to a non-stretchy waistband, you know? Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, buttons are for fools, and I, I will know. never wear them again. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't know about y'all, but I don't fit in my jeans anymore, and so whenever we, we have to go back to the office, I'm going to be like, fuck, I have to have to like, buy new clothes or lose a bunch of weight really fast. I know. Uh, I was saying to my husband, I was like, okay, I've got till the end of the year to get back in my pants and then i was like uh oh but it's like halloween and then, <laughs> and then christmas 
like that's like eating season. <laughs> it's okay. It's okay. I've discovered this magical weight loss thing. They're called calcine bars. The fat just like melts <laughs> off of you. <laughs> really? It just burns carbs. Burns them right up. <laughs> so Jen, what brought you on to this episode? Why did you pick the final girls? Well, I love Final Girls. That's, I think, what really kind of hooked me into, like, analyzing horror and, like, Mm -hmm. really wanting to, like, understand it. Like, I just think that type of character I relate to a lot and I can find, like, a lot of empowerment from that story. And so, and this is about Final Girls and I love how it kind of deconstructs the the character. And I love slashers, too, mostly because they usually have a Final Girl. Mm Mm-hmm. This is such a fun movie, but it makes me like I wrote down in my notes the three different times I cried also because mm-hmm. <laughs> I feel Aww. like there's a lot of heart in this movie, too. It's just a fun it, like, it was a fun watch yesterday when I was just really down. There was a lot of like bad news. And I was like, OK, this is going to be a, little, a relaxing thing to watch right. tonight. So, yes. Yeah. That's what I was trying to get into before I introduced you was um this is a movie that, at least on my end, I had built up a lot in my mind. And when I saw it in theaters, because I actually did get to see this in theaters. Hmm. I was just kind of like, oh, it's okay. But I think I very, I mean, even though I knew it was PG-13, I walked in expecting more slashery elements, which granted, mm-hmm. they're here. But because it does feel watered down with that rating, I didn't get what I wanted out of this movie. And mm-hmm. rewatching it last night, and, you know, it's been five years, I enjoyed it so much more because I knew what I was going into. I knew to focus more on those emotional aspects between Max and Nancy slash Amanda and the film works so much better that way if you just take like all the slashery like meta elements as icing on the cake of this mm-hmm. emotional roller coaster you're going on. I yeah. totally agree. And I, I was kind of having that same experience because the first time I watched it, I was like, mm, okay, this is good. Yeah, it's a bit of a shrug, right? Exactly. And there's there something that felt kind of like slight to me about it, you know, mm-hmm. like it didn't mm-hmm. like quite get me all the way there to I guess phrase it weirdly Um, (laughs) but um, and I was trying to think about what that was and I think it is the deaths like I feel like there's not really a death in the movie that I really kind of believe or I think is done well and not necessarily the effects because I think there are a lot of really great effects in this movie Mm -hmm. especially like when he jumps out of the window on fire I think that looks great and I was really excited by that but anytime anybody dies I was like okay it's so fast, right? Yeah. Like, it, mm-hmm. there's no lasting impact because we're just moving on. And I think part of it owes the rating and also because they're trying this tricky balance of tone. Mm-hmm. And if you fixate on the death, then you're going to lose the comedy aspect. Well, yeah. I think that's the issue, though. Is like, So this movie, I mean, you can say 80 slasher all you want. This movie is very much mostly owing a debt to the Friday the 13th franchise with like a little bit of the burning thrown in there, right? Mm-hmm. Correct. If you walk into this movie saying, cool, we're getting a love letter to those franchises I'm sorry that franchise and that movie you are going to fall up short come up short with this because I agree that the deaths aren't creative that being said though even watching it like whenever um, Gertie and Vicky die I was just like oh shit I felt so bad for them mm-hmm. yeah, that I'm kind of happy they don't get like brutal deaths you know yeah totally and the same with the mom too oh, oh my god <laughs> <laughs> yeah the long shot of her just falling over oh it's so sad <laughs> I know I yeah I was like I usually try to when I cry just kind of contain it and just like a couple of tears and this was like ugly <laughs> and I'll get this out there right off the bat. Um, so this film actually was written for an R rating because it is written by two men who love and adore horror. But the studio from the get-go, from the beginning of filming, was adamant about the PG-13 rating. And mm. 
we can lament that all we want. It's a disservice as a studio to be like, oh, we're doing a love letter to the slasher genre, but we're also going to make it PG-13. That being said, I think there's so much, like, especially from the horror community, about, like, oh, it needs to be rated R. Like, same with the Happy Death Day movies. Mm-hmm. And honestly, both of those, like, this movie and that franchise, because I'm going to call that a franchise, are so sure. much more hinged on the emotional components of its lead character mm-hmm. that... I think it's okay to not have the gore, not have the violence, not have the tits. But an example is an original draft of the screenplay had like the girls would like get their boobs bigger when they were teleported into the thing because they were supposed to, they were morphed into like attractive 80s female stereotypes. Mm. And there was a subplot where Gertie didn't want to leave the film because she was more attractive in this, in this world. Ooh, interesting. Uh, I'm kind of glad it's not there. So she was like doing stuff to like ensure that they couldn't get out. And I agree. Mm. It works better with all of them working together as friends. Yeah. So I agree. I mean I think honestly in this case, while it could be fun to have an R-rated version of this with maybe some more colorful language, it works very well as a PG thirteen film. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. What we figured out between this and the Happy Death Day films is like if you lean into the comedy and the heart, then I think that compensates the issue. People have heard me say this before. I'm just singing <laughs> the same old song. It comes down to then marketing. Because if the marketing doesn't cue your audience that they're not going to get like extreme gore, then it's going to piss off a bunch of people. And I think that's maybe where our muted reactions initially to this film came from. And then once you appreciate, oh, it was never going to give me that. It's Mm -hmm. actually giving me laughs and heart. Then this film is far more successful. Mm -hmm. And that is why, Joe, I still want you to rewatch Happy Death Day 2, because I think you'll have a similar reaction. Oh, my God. I'm not denying that. I just don't have (laughs) fucking time. I don't, I'm, not, I'm not trying to harp on you. I'm just saying I, he didn't dislike Happy Death Day to you. He was just, again, like a, on a first watch of this, he was lukewarm on it. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's like once you figure out what it's doing, then it. Be, I cried my eyes out on Happy Death Day too. And I don't, mm-hmm. I don't love those movies. I like them a lot, but they're not like my favorites. But I mean, that one, it just really got me. Yeah. But yeah. also like I'd seen the first one, so I kind of knew what to expect. And I wasn't really going in looking to be really scared. Well, you know? right. I think the main yeah. issue with that one, though, is that the, se- the sequel takes on a more like sci-fi adventure genre mm-hmm. approach as opposed to a slasher approach. And a lot yeah. of horror fans and fans of the first movie had a huge issue with that as well. Yeah. And if people want to hear more about our take on that, you can go and listen to our Patreon episode on it. Yes, you can, because I defended the fuck out of it. <laughs> <laughs> but, go, so going back to the heart of this movie, because there actually is a reason that this film feels so authentic, at least from a writing standpoint, and that is because of the writing duo. So, the writers are M.A. Fortin, uh, better known as Mark Fortin, a.k.a. former co-host of the Attack of the Queer Wolf podcast, which, um... I didn't put together until like a couple months ago when I was like just looking this movie up and I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> yeah, I didn't realize until I listened to the episode that the double A horror ladies did on this film and they were like, yeah, it was two gay men who wrote this and one of them is like that guy and I was like, that name is familiar and also just an FYI. Mark Fortin's Canadian, you know, ding ding, Canadian. I thought you were going to correct me on something. I was like, fuck, what did I get wrong already? (laughs) (laughs) But his partner since 2013 is Joshua John Miller. Now, does that name ring a bell to either one of y'all? I mean, only because I'm looking at your cheat sheet and <laughs> right, it tells yeah. us okay. what he's done. <laughs> well, I was hoping, like, so did you know beforehand, I guess? <laughs> I <laughs> did, but I did not connect the name. Okay. So yeah, Joshua John Miller is the son of Jason Miller, who is one of the priests, who plays Father Karras in The Exorcist. And 
Miller, by the way, also got his start in acting because he actually plays um, Louise's bratty younger brother in the movie Teen Witch. <gasps> I love that movie. <laughs> and he also plays Tom Atkins' son in Halloween 3 season of The Witch. Okay. So Yeah, I know. I, I had to look that up. But yeah, so basically he talked about how... Uh, actually, this is a direct quote. He says, I grew up watching my dad in The Exorcist, and there's something haunting, strange, confusing, and a little bit unnatural to see your parent constantly die in a film. Right. But it's something that also becomes iconic, and we try to deconstruct what the effects of that would be, as well as what it would be like if you had a second chance, but your second chance was inside of a movie. Yes. And I fucking love that. I think yeah. that is such a... Like, I mean, the film it would be good on its own like legs either way, but that it actually comes from someone who had the same experience that Max does in this movie. I mean, granted, I don't think Jason Miller died in a car crash when he was really young, but <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, it, it, it adds like an extra note of authenticity to this film for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's such a rich thematic device to say, like, we all wonder what would happen if we had another chance to do something over. And again, not to bring it back to Happy Death Day, but like both of these films are mm-hmm. based on a premise of having a do over opportunity. Mm-hmm. But I think because this film is so indebted, like it really is a love letter to films and particularly slashers that the two mesh very, very well as concepts. And even though I don't know that they don't really spend a ton of time on this idea that, like, what is it like to have to watch your parent die over and over and over again? But I do like that that's at least the impetus. And then once we get into the film, then we've got a good sort of foundational stakes established. And I think that's why the Max and Nancy stuff rings so authentically true, because they took the time to actually set it up, however briefly, at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, and actually, it was longer, because um, I think the, the way the film starts as it stands is it starts with the trailer for the fake movie, Kate Camp Bloodbath. Mm-hmm. There is an extended opening of the film where it's actually like you get more pre the audition as they're on the way to the audition. But I think that when they screened it for test audiences, because they did have the trailer later in the movie, I think maybe when they got to the theater, but test audiences couldn't peg the tone of the film because without the trailer to start it, where you immediately see the kind of like spoofy 80s slasher trailer, it just starts with this kind of mother-daughter vibe and then boom, the mom's dead. (laughs) Yeah, you're like, oh, is this a drama? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But yeah, I know. So they've written it and the film was originally picked up by New Line Cinema in November of 2011, but the script was shopped elsewhere when production didn't get off the ground. So in February 2014, it took another like almost three years, uh, Sony Pictures Worldwide Acquisitions had bought the rights to the film under their Stage 6 Films banner. And then they end up making it. It's really cool. They film it from April to May of 2014. We've got a budget of $4.5 million, and they are shooting it in Baton Rouge and St. Francisville, Louisiana. Hmm. Baton Rouge hmm. is near my neck of the woods from when I, where I was born, which is really fun. Nice. It premieres at South by Southwest in March of 2015, and then they release it in limited theatrical release and VOD on October 9th, 2015. I could not find box office information for this film. It's not listed anywhere, but I I mean, again, I saw it in theaters, so it got at least like $12 for me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I do think that that theatrical release was quite limited because I heard a lot of buzz about this film, and then all of a sudden it was just out on video. Mm Mm-hmm. It really sucks because obviously it's set up for a sequel and there was a sequel, I think, planned, but it was very much like, I think that like the studio was doing a marketing thing where they were like, hey, y'all like tell your friends to go see it so we can like make the money for a sequel. And it just didn't transpire. And unfortunately, because it's been five years and not that these kids in this movie look like high school seniors. <laughs> they're <anyway>. young, no. <laughs> <laughs> Which is on point for what they're trying to skew. A hundred percent. 
Um, but it, yeah, I would I would love to see a sequel to this, but I just don't think we're ever going to get it. Yeah. Which is funny, though, because I would argue that this film has definitely developed maybe not like a huge fan base, but I think the people who like it like it a lot. Like there's mm-hmm. a passionate following for this film. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. In terms of reception, critical reception is pretty positive. We've got a 72% on Rotten Tomatoes uh, with an average score of 6.3 out of 10 and a letterbox score of 6.6 out of 10. The only thing I wanted to point out before we go into the plot, though, is that the director is Todd Strauss Schulson, and that name might not sound familiar to you, but he he got his start, well, his first major feature film was A, a Very Harold and Kumar 3D Christmas. Oh, classic, yeah. <laughs> it's actually not that bad. It's better than Guantanamo <laughs> Bay. But I, I also mean... didn't, didn't, I didn't realize that Malin Ackerman got her start in the first Harold and Kumar movie. I didn't realize that oh, either. Shame. So I haven't seen the movie in a long time, so I looked up her clip, but there's a part where they go to this like house and there's a guy named Freak Show there who's like this hillbilly covered in warts and boils and he's played by Christopher Maloney. (laughs) But Malin Ackerman plays his sexy wife who tries to get a foursome with all of them, but like they get grossed out by his boils and they run away. Mm. (laughs) Oh my god. Oh, Harold and Kumar. But um after directing this, he actually went on and directed the uh the Rebel Wilson movie Isn't It Romantic, which went on to Lampoon romantic comedies. Yes, although I think less successfully than this. (laughs) Less successfully. I do like it. I do think it's funny, but it's missing the heart that this movie has. Right. Yeah, which is surprisingly essential. Mm -hmm. I think you've either got to go really hard into the comedy and just like go for broke or you ease off and you make it a little bit sentimental. Mm -hmm. Well, and Mm -hmm. I think like if you're developing your characters well, your story is going to have a heart to it, you know? whether you try to lean into it or not, you know, because they'll feel like real people who are connecting with each other. Right. And I wouldn't even say that the final girls get super deep emotionally. Like even, I mean, obviously I think the stuff with Max and Nancy Amanda is really good, but it's not like there's a significant amount of screen time devoted to it. And I will credit that to both of their performances, even Farmiga's. (laughs) But like even the scene with Vicky, where she like confesses her feelings about like, when Max like abandoned her after her mom died like that's a minute of screen time and that still hits really well you know it does yeah yeah and it's such yeah. a switch to like an abrupt switch for her mm-hmm. I don't know what it is that makes it work maybe it's the performances or maybe it's that it, there's room for it you know they're not trying to crowd so many other things into the movie you know I think mm-hmm. it's also the raw honesty. Like, I mean, something like that could easily come off as, like, schmaltzy, you know? Mm-hmm. But there's something that's refreshing about the raw honesty of a lot of the emotional confessions in this film. Again, it is coupled with the performances and the writing. They just make it feel more authentic than just, like, a forced emotional confession of, like, oh. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that, and also by that point in the film, we've also done away with, like, the really big comedic personalities Mm-hmm. Uh, right. I'm just gonna get this on the table. So, Trace, you don't like Farmigo all that much. You don't like Adam Divine. I fucking <laughs> ooh, a little goes a long way for me, and there is a lot in this movie. <laughs> I would also add Middle Ditch or Middle March, whatever. Middle Ditch, Thomas Middle Ditch. Yeah, yeah. They're both just very big personalities, and I think it doesn't hurt that we get rid of these big male performances so that we can actually focus on the character relationships between the females as the film goes on. Well, it's also getting rid of the men, right? Because the movie is called The Final Girls. Mm-hmm. I mean, I guess we still have Alexander Ludwig, but you know, yeah. he's just Chris there. <laughs> yeah. You mean hot, empty bag of flesh? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He mm-hmm. looks real good, but also please keep your mouth shut. 
I don't dislike him in this movie, and I actually do like his character, but he sure. is so forgettable. Yes. Mm. When he's off the screen, it's like a kind of spell. I just forget he's even in the film. Right. Right. And I haven't seen the TV show Vikings, but apparently he's been in that for a while and supposedly really good. Yeah, we watched the first season of that, but I wasn't totally paying attention. Vikings is like Sons of Anarchy with Viking boats, and I yeah. just had already watched Sons of Anarchy, and I was like, oh, I <laughs> I've already seen the better version of exactly. this Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> with the hotter blonde guy. Oh. <laughs> Sorry. Snap. I love that. Is it, uh, oh, God, it's um Charlie. Charlie Hunnam. Whew. Okay, Sorry. see, you're going to laugh at me, though. So I know that people think Charlie Hunnam's really hot. I actually prefer him when he was in Queer as Folk as, like, a little 20-year-old twink. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yes, because we have established this. You like them barely legal. I know. But, Jen, if, if you don't know what I'm referring to, you should Google, after this recording, Charlie Hunnam, Queer as Folk, because you will not recognize this person. Oh, really? He is beardless, skinny, blonde, long hair, but, like, not, not mm. like, ponytail hair, like, mm. bangs and shit, you know? Ooh. It's, he's so cute. <laughs> I'll send you a picture later. I got some Googling material for later. Nice. Oh, God. Oh, God. What am I doing here? Anyway. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, yeah, that, that's it. I mean, I, overall, yeah, I think the movie, it's a success. It's not uh, clearly not a huge enough success to get a sequel, but people, as y'all said, it, it has a following of people that really, really, really do like it. Mm-hmm. It tends to get written off by the quote-unquote hardcore horror crowd because it's just not horror-y enough for them. Yeah. Yeah. I almost don't know if I even want a sequel to it, you know, because what would the story be? And I feel like that setup for a sequel, it fits with the whole dissecting the tropes kind of thing that it doesn't necessarily feel like they're actually setting it up. It just feels like another joke, you know, and Mm -hmm. like the heart of this movie, I feel like, is the story between Max and her mom. And I don't know what they would do for the second one. You know, I would argue that you could make it them more. Because I love Nina Dobrev in this movie, Dobrev. Mm-hmm. You could make it maybe more about the friends all connecting more mm-hmm. and, like, becoming closer together. I mean, I-, I see what you're saying. You know, like, wh- why ruin a perfect thing, right? Yeah. But I can see that maybe being the thing where it's, okay, cool. So she's accepted that her mom is dead now and she is moving on. But now she has to repair these bridges that she's broken with her old best friend. And also, like, compromise with her new best friend and, like, make it all work. That would be nice. You'd have to have a good writer again. <laughs> mm-hmm. But I think it could be cool. I also think there's kind of an element where I just have been burned by sequels in the past, too. That's fair. <laughs> what? <Yeah>, I know. <laughs> it's like there. It, it, this almost feels kind of like lightning in a bottle. Like they just happen to get the tone just right. And right, it just yeah. makes me nervous that they wouldn't. Although I do really like that. Not to compare it to Happy Death Day again, but to kind of like take the story and focus it on another character, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. I think they'd have to take it in a different direction, too, because, yeah, it would be too predictable if they just said, oh, we're not going to deconstruct sequel tropes. It's like, right. oh, no, don't do that, please. You'd have to find it a, way, a way to not make it a rehash of what this film was doing. Right. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I get that. Yeah. And not make it Scream 2. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Scream 2 is perfect. But, that, okay. True. Yeah. I mean, everything should want to be Scream 2, but, you know, <laughs> few fan. Mm-hmm. All right, so after watching the very Friday the 13th inspired trailer for Camp Bloodbath while waiting for her mother. Were y'all a little upset? Because I love the look of this trailer, how it's like the kind of old school VHS-y thing. Mm -hmm. I was kind of a little upset that like when they actually go into the movie later that it doesn't switch video style to look like that. Because mm-hmm. I've seen, the, I think when they were pitching this movie, they they were like, oh, it's Pleasantville, but with a horror movie. Mm-hmm. 
And so I kind of almost would have appreciated if they did like an 80s VHS quality for like the rest of the film. But maybe the studio was against that. I don't know. That would be really cool. I wonder, not knowing how to do any of that stuff, I no. wonder if they were like, no, we can't do it. It's <laughs> just too much. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've seen a couple of movies try to do it. I mean, obviously we had Grindhouse, the Robert Rodriguez Ooh. and Quentin Tarantino film. But I think part of it is that it can become too on the nose like i think it works briefly but if you focus too much on it it becomes distracting mm -hmm. well and with grindhouse and i was working in a movie theater when that movie came out we actually had people come out and complain about the quality of the footage and we were we had to constantly tell people like no no no, no. it's supposed to look like that <laughs> <laughs> yeah. oh goodness uh, we're all very special <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so we are introduced to Max, played by Tessa Farmiga. No, Tessa Farmiga. I say Tessa. It might be Taisa. Oh. I just kind of say Taisa and then just kind of slurred. <laughs> just <it>. say Farmiga. <laughs> yes, there we go. Little Farmiga. There we go. Or, or as Anthony from Gale of the Darkness would say, Farmiga. <laughs> right. Like the fridge, yeah. <laughs> Okay, so Baby Farms is uh, sitting in the car. She's waiting for her mother, Amanda, played by the wonderful Ugh. Malin Ackerman. Mm -hmm. And she is coming out of a failed audition. Ackerman, to this day, still has not gotten her due. She is a brilliant comedic actress. Joe, you and I have discussed Trophy Wife, the one-season mm -hmm. wonder ad nauseum, and I won't go into it anymore, but... <laughs> I feel like she got so much hate for Watchmen, and I don't even think that that thing was her fault. I think it was the way she was written. Mm-hmm. I don't even think she's bad in it. No, she just has nothing to work with. <laughs> Except to look like a woman. She's not bad. She's just drawn that way. Come on. <laughs> but like, and it sucks though, because I think she's doing that TV show Billions. And I was like, I have noticed. It's like yeah, a yeah. show of men. And she's like the one woman in the cast. And mm -hmm. I was like, oh, I love you, Ackerman. But like, I don't love you enough to watch that show. Yeah. Yeah. I'm looking at what like she's listed as. And it's just like, there's nothing that I'm really interested in watching. So right. I know she exists. And I know she's an actress. And I love her in this, but this is the only thing I think I've really seen her in. Like, I put seen in quotation marks. Sorry. I will say, it's it's not a great movie, but she is the highlight of it, is the Farrelly Brothers' remake of The Heartbreak Kid with Ben Stiller, and she's, like, the crazy woman that he marries. She plays a batshit crazy woman, and it's really funny. I mean, she's really funny. The movie as a whole is eh, but it's right. worth a watch just for her. But she did a lot of wrong. Like, she's, like, she's like the other woman in... 27 Dresses, the Catherine Heigl rom-com. Mm -hmm. The other woman in The Proposal, the Sandra Bullock, Ryan Reynolds rom-com. <laughs> it's because she's hot and they can't figure out what to do with a really comedically talented actress who just happens to look like a supermodel. Mm -hmm. So yeah. she has to be the other woman because it's like, well, women will be threatened by her and men will want to sleep with her. So <sighs> that's the only possible role she could embody. And it's like, bitch, she's a good actress. Mm -hmm. She's really good. Write your parts better. Yeah. Mm -hmm. For sure. Ooh, that's a whole soapbox. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we um we don't like it when actresses that we like don't get their due, and right. there's a lot of them. Like men fail upwards, and women become well, moms. And, mm -hmm. and Jen, the thing is, I mean, like cause I, when Trophy Wife was canceled, and like I think Billions, like she was announced for Billions like two years later. I remember being like, oh yeah, she's in a TV show, and then I saw the cast, and I was like, oh fuck. I mean, I love mm -hmm. Paul Giamatti. Don't get me wrong, but I'm just like when I saw the plot, I was like, fuck. But like. Yeah. Trophy <laughs> Wife had, it's Malin Ackerman, Marsha Gay Harden, Michaela Watkins, and Bradley Whitford. And, like, oh. it's a perfect sitcom because she's, like, the third wife, but it's called mm. Trophy Wife. And, like, Marsha Gay Harden and Michaela Watkins are his first two wives. And it was so funny, but because it had the name Trophy Wife, 
no one watched it. <laughs> yeah, it was that in Cougar Town. We're like, oh, yep. maybe don't name your fucking sitcoms after cutesy titles that will not end well. Oh, see mm-hmm. also selfie. Yep, one hundred. Mm-hmm. Yep, one hundred percent. God damn it! Yeah. Shows with like, huh? This will be a catchphrase on Twitter, right? Yeah, but you have to have a whole season of the show. You had Karen Gillan and John Cho in a My Fair Lady reboot sitcom, and you ruined it, audience <laughs> <Yeah>. America. <laughs> oh my god. They were so fucking hot together. So <laughs> anyway, we are back to this movie. <laughs> Can we talk about the trailer real quick? Yes, I love, loved this trailer. And I didn't remember it from the first time I watched it, maybe because I wasn't quite paying it. I was doing something while I was watching it. It's right there in the opening. So if you're not paying attention, you're like, oh, am I still watching a trailer for something else? Exactly. Yeah, then maybe this is a trailer for a different movie. But I loved it so much. It was just such the right tone to start this off on. And as somebody who like loves slashers, it didn't feel mean-spirited, but it felt like, okay, we, we know what to do here. you know. Mm-hmm. The thing that it did that I loved the most was spoil all the deaths in the movie, because that is 100% <laughs> yeah. something those Friday the 13th trailers do. <laughs> mm-hmm. And yeah. the, I had to write some of the lines down, too, because the Kumbai no one. Yes! <laughs> oh, my God, that's amazing. And the only marshmallow that will roast is your sanity. <laughs> This is amazing. I will confess that a lot of my notes for this movie are quotes. Yes. (laughs) This movie is very quotable. I'll confess, as much as I don't like Divine, he still got a bunch of really funny lines. He did, yeah. yeah. I've noticed when I take notes on movies, um, if I really like it, I end up just writing down every single thing that happens or that somebody says. And if I really hate it, I just end up yelling, like, fuck you to the characters in my notes. (laughs) (laughs) And this was one of the ones that I did really like. So I I did write quite a few quotes, too. There's a lot of charm here. There is, yeah. Yeah, and I do hear what you're saying about they're just a hair too much of um, Middle Ditch and Adam Divine. I disagree. I mean, I'll maybe (laughs) say okay on Divine. Mm Mm-hmm. Middle Ditch, I think, is fine, but I also, like, I love that he's basically the Randy, and the movie acknowledges that he sucks. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Well, and so yeah. I wonder, like, I loved Middle Ditch the first time I watched it, and I think I just kind of have, have had kind of a journey with him right. in the last yeah. five years, and I think I'm kind of going back to the liking him a little more side. Um. <laughs> well, I think that character, though, of, like, the, the snobby movie buff who's nerdy and kind of obnoxious. Because I've seen a lot of discourse lately, especially in the Twitterverse, that's very anti-Randy Meeks. Mm -hmm. And I get it, you know, he's just, it's because he's like a film bro, like before film bros existed. Mm -hmm. But like a lot of film bros have latched onto him as like their god. Right. (laughs) Of course. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And I don't know if that was intentional on um, Fortin and Miller's part, but like it very much seems like a kind of a takedown of that type of character. Yeah. And the only time I don't love Randy is the few seconds that he has a weird British accent at the beginning of two. But other than that, I love him. And I would have worked, too. <laughs> I still think it's creepy that he this? followed Sid to college, but yeah, sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, he's got, <laughs> he had an excess of Banaka, so. <laughs> <laughs> and Adam Devine, I have kind of had a journey with him, too, because I did not like him the first time I saw this. And I was like, okay, get that, get that kid dead. Mm-hmm. And then, but then I saw him on the Righteous Gemstones. Did you guys watch that? No, but I've heard yeah. it's great. I really liked it. It's like ninety nine percent. I'm okay with him. There are a couple of moments where I'm like, okay, this is too much because hmm. he is very, very over the top, and occasionally it doesn't work. Y'all are gonna hate me. I actually really <laughs> liked the movie with him and Zac Efron and Aubrey Plaza and Anna Kendrick. That was Mike and Dave need wedding dates. 
Yeah, oh, it's I okay. It's cute. Like he, 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 I think when he's not playing this character, he can be good. But mm. he's just always put into this type of character role. Yeah. Yeah. See, also Pitch Perfect. Pitch Perfect. Yeah. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. He is. I think my least favorite part of Pitch Perfect, except he for sucks. the puking. I don't like the puking part either. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> anyway sorry back to the plot (laughs) all right we get a little bit of background that things are not going super well financially like these women are in financial trouble but amanda is very much i can't care about Mm. this because Mm -hmm. i need to also live in the moment so this is where we get the first really good moment between mother and daughter is where they sing along to betty davis eyes by kim carney's and fun factoid that you probably both already know but they really (laughs) wanted madonna's like a virgin to be the song for this movie Two on the nose. They actually Mm -hmm. wrote to Madonna and said, can we please do it? But apparently that is the one song in her catalog that she will not license. And so she wrote back and said, you can literally use any song of mine, but you cannot use Like a Virgin. Yeah. I I mean, Like a Virgin. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Damn it. Like a prayer. Like a prayer. Mm. Oh, okay. I was going to say, because Like a Virgin would make sense. Right. No. No, it, it, it is like a prayer. <laughs> oh my God. If anyone just cursed me out for getting that wrong, I'm so sorry. I mean, it was like a prayer. <laughs> I do like that song better. So I'll... I do too. <laughs> yeah. I don't think it would work though. I don't know. Maybe it's just because this song is so iconic to this movie for me. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I cry every time I hear it now because of this yeah. movie. Yeah. Aw. I know. I'm, I'm so sweet. <laughs> I cry way too much. <laughs> hey, we're allowed to have feelings. That's true. Okay. Yes. <laughs> I would actually rather people cried more and got angry less. Oh my gosh, me too. Yeah, and I mean, well, to go into a bunch of therapy talk, anger often masks our sadness. So when you're mad, maybe you're really sad. Maybe you just need to have a good cathartic cry. Watch the final girl. I feel that way about a lot of people on Twitter when I see them being snarky and angry. Mm -hmm. Oh my god, who hurt you? Take a nap. Yeah. Yeah, pretty much. Okay, so they have this little sing-along, and then Max accidentally spills a cup of coffee onto Amanda's glossy headshots, and this prompts a fatal car accident. (sighs) We get the title card, and we jump ahead three years. And this is when I started crying (laughs) the first time. The CGI of the car crash doesn't look great. great. Mm -mm. That's fine. But I do love that we get that hold of like the the long shot from the street as as the, the traffic light switches to red. Whenever people are in a car in a movie, I'm like, okay, when's the car crash? Like, when are they going to get, like, T-boned? Yes. <laughs> okay, and I think the descent has ruined me for all car crashes, too. Because I'm always like, watch the road! And she was not watching the road. <laughs> but I, The descent is the best way to do a car crash. My least favorite type of car crash, and it's how it always is, is when it's you know, pointing out the window, and then you just see the car come in a T-bone. And I'm like, it's such mm-hmm. a fucking tropey visual effect for car crashes. So the descent, though, where it's like, oh, we're drifting off the road, mm-hmm. that's better for me. Like, that's more effective. Right. Yeah, that one in Inside, the French Alentelio, yes. very mm-hmm. good. I would argue you can take, trace your argument where it's like the camera's trained on the driver and you just like are watching and watching and watching as something comes and hits them. I can clock that all the way back to the season two finale of Alias. I was going to say that. Yes. Oh, yeah. I mean, Mm -hmm. I'm sure it's happened before that, but yes. Yeah. But that's the one that I think of. And I didn't even watch that show. And I still know that scene. (laughs) (laughs) Iconic. I know. I've watched that finale so many times just for that fucking Francie and Sydney fight, so I don't oh even care. God. The Ooh. best. The best. You need to watch the show. <laughs> oh, it's oh, so good. Jen, it's really good. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So we are three years in the future. Max is now 
quite sad. She's not a very happy person anymore. Mm-hmm. And on the anniversary of her mother's death, she gets picked up by Gertie, who is played by Aaliyah Shokat. And she tries to set Max up on a study date with Hottie Chris, played by Alexander <laughs> I, I, Wait, I'm sorry. Aaliyah Shokat? I literally looked it up, bitch. Is that's that, how it's wait, pronounced. That's is that how it's, it's pronounced? Showcat? I've always said Shawcat because I there's an too. A. Yeah, or Shawcat. I looked Aaliyah. it up. Fuck you. You suck. <laughs> okay, say it one more time, though. In search party, please welcome Aaliyah Shawcat. <laughs> and our final prediction for Brad's next boo, Aaliyah Shawcat. The freckled face. Time, most of the cast, which also includes Jessica Walter, Jeffrey Tambor, Alia Shawkat, and Tony Hale. By everyone, uh, Alia Shawkat, she's one fantastic. And Anton Yelchin as the bassist, Pat. And Alia Shawkat on guitar as Sam. It's Alia Shawkat. It's like showgirls, but showcats. Because mm. mm-hmm. I was like, there is no O in that last name. <laughs> Why would it be called this? Right. And everybody was like, yeah, Showcat. Weird, Listeners, right? you heard it here first. That's how you pronounce that. <laughs> this is breaking news, guys. <laughs> now, Trace, pronounce Famke. Mm. Oh, God. Famke Janssen. There we go. <laughs> nice. Ugh, that was a whole journey. <laughs> <laughs> I'm learning so much. This is amazing. <laughs> but she is great. She deserves to have her name pronounced correctly. Yeah. Like, I lo- I've never seen her in anything I didn't absolutely love her in. She is great. I know some people give her flack because it kind of feels like she's always playing this Arrested Development character. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, we also say the same thing about Michael Cena, and he keeps getting work. So. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I would argue if people if people need to see the range of her talent, they should be watching... Search Party. Yes, thank you. Because it's that character, only totally despicable. Yeah. <laughs> it's a good role for her. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we are at this diner. Things are going well with Max and Chris. And then, of course, Gertie's new stepbrother, Duncan, Thomas Middleditch, (laughs) crashes. And he is immediately the annoying film dude that you can't stand to spend time around. (laughs) And he really wants Max to come to that night's camp bloodbath double bill. And the only way that he gets her to agree is if he will do all of her homework for the rest of the year. Okay, so I thought they were supposed to be in college because they're talking about, like, classics or whatever. Right. But then they're talking about college. So, okay, so they're supposed to be seniors because they're talking about... Well, actually, no, because don't you do... No, it's senior year. Okay, sorry. So that means really, though, in the first scene, Max is a freshman in high school, so she's supposed to be like 14. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. She's slouchy. Did you see her slouch in the car? That means that she's a freshman. Yeah. Right. And, and she's always she's on her phone. Right. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, I, I, I do love that they're supposed to be seniors in high school because that's just so funny to me. It's I like know. This is like grease level of age differences. <laughs> <laughs> what is classics? Is that Latin or is that like literature? No, I think it's I literature. literature. Yeah. That is never what I've heard it called. I think no. you took literature. Exactly. Yeah. We called it English. But, but like, I, yeah, I know. I, my first actual class that was called literature, like American literature, that was in college. Mm-hmm. For sure. For yep. sure. It was just yeah. freshman English, junior English, senior English, mm-hmm. sophomore English also. Yeah, sometimes they throw, like, an AP on the end of it. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they put on, you know, like, the dum-dum dunce hat. <laughs> the fancy classes, yes. Yeah. <laughs> so our final character that we get introduced to is Chris's ex, Vicky Summers, played by the Vampire Diaries, Nina DeBrev, and she has an Adderall problem and a jealousy problem, and she is so fucking funny in this movie. Mm-hmm. Yes, okay, thank you. 
I mean, Joe, you and I, we both love a bitch, but like, <laughs> love a bitch. But like, she is an, in, like, she, she's, she's not an like, endearing bitch. She's mm-hmm. not like a really, she's not a mean girl, you know? Like, she calls herself that later, but like, I never, like, it's clear from the get go that she is like very insecure. Yes, yes. yes. Yeah. And that's like, gives her the humanity where you connect and you're like, okay, this is a real person, you know? Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, I will agree. She is so fun. Her comedic timing. I didn't watch The Vampire Diaries. I have no connection to Nina Dobrev at all. Same. Oh, her main character on The Vampire Diaries is atrocious. And then she gets to play a doppelganger who is like a bitch and sexy. And she's amazing. Like, you can't even believe it's the same actress. So whenever the first season finale aired, my parents were watching and I was visiting at home from college, I think. And so the reveal, when it's revealed that she's actually, is it like Elena or something? Uh, Elena is the regular character, and then I can't remember what the double okay. is. Whenever it's revealed that she's actually, because like, you think it's Elena, but then it's actually the evil bitchy one, like, yeah. my parents, I just remember my parents going, <gasps> and I was like, what the fuck are y'all, <laughs> what are y'all doing? <laughs> Does she not look exactly the same? No, they do, but it was the bitchy one pretending to be the nice one, and it was mm. her first appearance on the show, I think. Because, yeah. like, they'd always talked about how she looks just like this other evil vampire but yeah. she's not her. And mm-hmm. so it's definitely not alias at all. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I, she's hilarious in this movie. These early scenes, you, ex- you know exactly what type of girl this is. Mm-hmm. Tyson got super sick, super fast. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's really good. Okay. We do have to pick this up a little bit. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Okay, so the movie begins, and we learn a little about the history of little Billy Murphy, who, in a black-and-white 1957 flashback, which is very much like The Burning. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I appreciate that they're dipping into the backwaters of slasher films, not just Friday the 13th. -hmm. Right. But, uh, yeah, so he's got, you know, this tragic backstory, and everyone in the theater is having a great time with this movie hooting and hollering. People are drinking. People are smoking jays. Smoking in the theater. Like, I am sorry. <laughs> what theater is this? In the year of our Lord, 2015. <laughs> <laughs> I smoked through uh, Memoirs of a Geisha. Not through it, but I, I snuck a cigarette. <laughs> we were the only ones in the theater, and I was like, okay, nobody's going to say. <laughs> You're like, oh, I can't deal with this cultural appropriation. <laughs> I need a cigarette. <laughs> I know. I was like, whew. And then, um, this is a lot about me. Sorry. <laughs> Back in my college days, I snuck a bottle of wine into the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Yes, we... you did. <laughs> and we finished it, and I accidentally dropped it, and it rolled all the way down to the front of the theater. It was really loud. Did it loud. break? Did it break? It Tell did not about... break, but it was like, oh, sorry. Side note, we didn't mention this, and I, I just to say one thing. for Also for Miss Showcat, Green Room. That's also yes. her range. Oh, I oh, right, love right, right. her yeah. in that. Yeah. And that movie is great, too. Mm-hmm. Oh, Anton Yelchin. I liked it and then never wanted to revisit it because I was stressed. It's, yeah, yeah, it's, it's rough. A, it's a rough movie. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so uh, when we get to the sex scene between Nancy, who is Malin Ackerman's character in the film, as well as Kurt, who is played by Adam Devine, this is where we get the combination of the booze and the lit joint and we start a fire and the theater goes into pandemonium and the only way out is when Max grabs a machete, which is apparently authentic enough to cut through the screen and they <laughs> enter the movie as Nancy is murdered on screen. I really like the camera work. Hey, there's a lot of fun camera work in this film when they get really creative, but um, I do like the fire, like the light up scene. It's really mm-hmm. good with the bottle rolling down and all that. It's really cool. I think the use of lighting throughout, I really enjoy, you know, and Mm -hmm. that's what I think kind of helps a lot with the tone. It doesn't feel like a dark movie. It feels like a lighter 
kind of upbeat, bright movie, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Mm. And this could have been shot in a pretty bland way and still accomplish what they were trying to get across. So I appreciate the artistic flourishes when they do try to do something a little bit unique. Mm -hmm. Yes. Okay, so we find ourselves on the side of the road and a van pulls up and Tina, played by Angela Trimber. Okay. I paused deliberately for you, Trace. <laughs> no, okay, so I, I really like her and I think she's really good in this movie. I think I liked her more on this watch because I think when I first watched this movie, I was like, okay, so she's supposed to be like the slutty dumb girl. Right. But she went beyond dumb to me and was like, oh, you're like mentally. <laughs> well, she's deranged. She's yeah. something. <laughs> I liked her more on this rewatch. I remember the first time I was like, I feel like that's going a little bit too far with the parody of this trope character, of this character like type. It worked better for me this time. Me too, yeah. It starts off a little bit one note, and then by the time that they get the gloves on her and the tape, <laughs> and she's just like going crazy trying to take it off because her character is driven by the need to strip, I was just like totally all in. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And this is the best strip scene ever. Oh my gosh. Oh, yes. <laughs> really good. <laughs> like, oh my gosh, you're going for it. Yeah, and I feel like her character... She really just exists to kind of exploit these like tropes throughout yes. in slashers, which so I can kind of forgive it a little bit. But yeah, yeah, I liked her a lot better. All of the movie characters, I think I liked a lot better on the second watch because I could just see what they were doing with them. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like the first time around, you're just like, oh, OK, is that? Oh, you're doing yeah, you're doing the thing. Okay, yeah. Got it. Mm -hmm. I think the little like clever nuances of the satire, or I guess maybe it's a par it's parody in this case. It's not satire. Mm. Yeah. They reveal themselves. You can see how clever they are on a rewatch as opposed to the first one, at least for mm -hmm. me. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, I think because the first time you watch a movie, you're always like, okay, well, what's happening next? I'm trying to follow the plot. You know, at this point, we're still getting introduced to new characters every five minutes. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. you're just kind of like, okay, I pegged you. You're the dumb, slutty one. And then it's like, what's going to happen next? You're not appreciating everything that she's putting into this. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I do love this smash cut of like 92 minutes later, which is the length of the movie. <laughs> and me the too. band comes back. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. yeah so we have that happen not once but twice <laughs> and then the third time around duncan gets them invited in and this is where we get another mother-daughter emotional beat as nancy wakes up and for the first time max realizes that she's basically in the same proximity as her dead mom again but yeah. of course it's not her second dead mom. time i cried <laughs> it's a good scene i mean you know I Farmiga is doing some good face acting here. <laughs> she is yeah. using her face. She's using her face to emote things. <laughs> they applied tears to her face. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I don't necessarily think it's her. that Because now that you're mentioning it, I didn't really notice her in the movie. I think it's just such a relatable concept. I mean, look, here's the thing. She plays this, like, sad, sat character in the first season of American Horror Story. Mm -hmm. And she plays, like, the same type of character, but slightly less sad in Coven, the third season. And they're supposed to give her more agency, but she's still... The inflection of her... Right. The way people <laughs> feel about Kristen Stewart or Rooney Mara mm -hmm. is how I feel about Tessa Farmiga. Like, I've seen range. I've, I've seen Rooney Mara and Kristen Stewart be dull as better. fucking toast. Mm -hmm. But, I, yeah, I've seen them have range and do better. I have not seen that yet from Tessa Farmiga. This is the closest that's come to that for me. Mm -hmm. But at this point in my life, actually, I will slightly amend that. In Ty West, In a Valley of Violence, she shows a little bit of range because that's mm -hmm. like a comedy Western John Wick. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of fun. 
but she has such a smaller like she's a smaller part so it just doesn't it doesn't like resonate it doesn't like, it doesn't stick with you later but mm. she just has the same monotonous voice for me yeah and her face just doesn't really move that much no it's know? just there yeah yeah. yeah. And now that I'm thinking about it, I'm thinking about what I've seen her in. And I liked the first season of American Horror Story mm-hmm. and the third one was okay. But I didn't like it because of her. You know? right. She's just always Absolutely. kind of there. Like she's a placeholder for whatever the other characters are doing. It's like if she's around, that means Evan Peters might be somewhere. Oh, and you're like, oh, yes. Okay, good. Yes, he is on my list. <laughs> I think she's good in the first season because the role that she's playing is the role that she is good at playing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's like when Kristen Stewart gets that moody role. You're like, okay. Right. There you go. <laughs> and, and, and if you want to see Kristen Stewart have range that's like not the same, you can watch either Personal Shopper or the Charlie's Angels new one, which isn't a great movie, but like she's the best part of it. Yeah. yeah she's absolutely. also super hot in Underwater, too. Yeah. Oh, yes. I'm a fan of That's like my chosen aesthetic if I could look like anything I wanted to. (laughs) Someday, maybe. (laughs) Nice. Anyway. Well, Halloween is just around the corner. That's true. And I have been threatening to shave my head for at least a year. (laughs) (laughs) At least six months. Get you like a bodysuit for the water. Whew. Yeah. (laughs) All right. So we get Duncan laying out the usual sex equals death rules as we figure out that we are in the movie. We need to survive it. Yada, yada, yada. Um, Vicky tries to get Kurt to give her the keys, but he just throws them away. He's very annoying in this scene. (laughs) Suck a turd, man. (laughs) I do like that Duncan calls out how atrociously bad the writing is, though. Yeah. Mm Yeah. 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 And that's a good delivery from Middle Ditch. He was like, the writing's so bad. Yeah. With like that big smile on his face because he loves it too, you know? Yes. Which is like all of us in some of these movies where you can't rationalize why you think it's good, but you love it so. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's one of the themes I kind of took out of this too is that like it's okay to like these movies or it's okay if you were in this movie and it's like not like cinema, you know, it didn't win any awards, but it's like a beloved movie and you can still enjoy the fact that you bring joy to people's lives you know absolutely mm-hmm. yeah that is the story of horror fans everywhere really right? that's the story of the friday the 13th franchise yes <laughs> okay so while all this is happening max is trying to convince nancy to stay sober and virginal and uh we eventually get to the point where they are hiding in the woods and they observe the first murder i don't know this girl's name but i called her the slutty hippie strawberry girl Mm. <laughs> I don't even know if she has a name, does she? I'm sure she has a name. <laughs> I will say that I enjoyed uh, Devine's delivery of when he's talking about Max. He's like, her hair is so flat. It makes me sad. <laughs> I didn't notice that. Because <laughs> you realize that all the women in the 80s always had very curly hair because it was like the Farrah Fawcett decade, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that's the thing, though, with like um, with, with comedies, especially witty comedies, where it's like, I've seen Drop Dead Gorgeous like a thousand times, but I feel like every time I watch that movie, I pick up a new line that I'm like, I, I swear I've never heard that before. Did they add that in like, yeah. like supernaturally <laughs> <laughs> since the last time I watched this? <laughs> Choose your own adventure. Yeah. <laughs> That'd be amazing, hey? I mean, that I think that's why I'm still enamored with the idea of Clue is the idea that you could go and see a slightly different film, like a version of the film mm-hmm. that you love that's different. Well, they did that with um with something recently with Unfriended Dark Web. There were three different endings. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But that. it had such a limited theatrical release that it really didn't matter. Mm. Yeah. I do really like that movie, though. 
I liked it, but the den, <laughs> it, it, it's it's a ripoff of the den, which is a much better version. Of okay, Jen. okay, really? let's move on. We've yeah. heard this story about a billion <laughs> times. Yeah, I know. Jen hasn't because she's shocked. <laughs> That's right. I know. I got to go check that that movie out now. The den was made before Unfriended. Like it was the first like real like, true screen life horror film. Mm. And your time is. I'm up. done. I'm done. I'm done. Go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> So Duncan rationalizes that they should be safe because Billy doesn't really know what to do with them because they're not characters in this movie. So as long as they can stick with the film's final girl, Paula, who will be introduced later, she's played by Chloe Bridges, when she arrives in the next reel. So they just have to stick with her. They should be fine. So he's not at all threatened by Billy. And then he gets murdered. Yeah, this was the part that he really bugged me. And I just kind of feel like it went on for too long, you know? Yeah, I agree. I think this scene goes on a bit too long, and it doesn't really make sense. I mean, I guess you can argue, yeah, sure, Billy doesn't know what to do, but then we get that fake out where he walks away, and yeah, this yeah. doesn't fully work for me. What does work for me is his actual death later in the film. Yes. <laughs> yes, better. <laughs> So at this point, the remaining protagonists try to run, but they discover that they're almost trapped in like a fish eye lens and the sets are limited on this movie that they're trapped in. So they just run in circles for about two minutes. I will tell you that the, you came back, yay, <laughs> made me like every single fucking time. I think it happens like four times. <laughs> yes. This is one of those, like, the rules of comedy. Like, had they only done it twice, I don't think it would have been that funny. But right. by the fourth time, you're like, oh, my God, how many <laughs> times are we going to see it? <laughs> All right. So they settle in for the long haul. They realize, okay, we've got to survive this 92-minute movie. So they participate in a demented sing-along. <laughs> and then they partner up with a character from the film. So Chris tries to clamp down on Kurt's horn dog attitude. And there's, I think, supposed to be comedy here. But this is this is where Adam Devine was, like, peak annoying me in the film. Yeah. Thought, Wait, is this the what are you a fag bit? Yeah. yeah. And even just, oh, I'm going to, like, hit on Max, blah, blah, blah. And you're just like, okay. Whatever. So there is an extended scene of the whole, like, are you a fag? Because they're talking about um, the hoots in the Playgirl or the Playboy he's reading. Correct. There's an alternate scene where they talk about Bush instead of Hoots, and I think maybe that was too extreme for the rating. Um, mm -hmm. I do appreciate that they mentioned that he has two gay dads. I do wish that they had expanded upon that a little bit more. Mm -hmm. It's very much just dropped in there, and it's like, make of this what you will. Okay. Yeah. Rewinding like a minute, I do love Nina Dobrev's delivery of, I'm sticking to that bitch like white on rice when she's talking about Paula. <laughs> <laughs> That to me was actually like, okay, I've heard that joke a million times. Like, I said that in high school all the time. My dad said that to me as a kid, but I don't care. I still liked it. <laughs> <laughs> Basically, I don't know how good Vicky's lines actually are, but I think Debrev gives such a good delivery of all of them that I still find them funny. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think what I like the most about this part is they're all, it's like their counterparts in the movie, right. you know? And yes. I think there's such a fun comparison between like kind of the updated version and then like the old, like super classic on the nose version. Absolutely. And I think the biggest comparison there is um, Adam Levine. What's his name? <laughs> Adam Levine. <laughs> yeah. I am really bad at ever knowing any names. Was it Kurt? I, Kurt, I, yeah. yeah, Kurt. I always called him Devine. My husband has corrected me multiple times and said it's actually Divine. Is so. it? Okay, so I did have it right, and then you two confused me, so I started <laughs> going with your pronunciations. I've said Divine literally from the get-go. Well, I wrote Adam Levine in my notes for some reason. <laughs> I don't okay, know why. let's recast this movie with Adam Levine in I this mean, performance. The hot tub scene would be a lot more interesting, I think. 
Right. Maybe get an extended <laughs> cut of. <laughs> Maybe it's a bit shitty, but I do kind of enjoy that Divine is not like a super fit character. And mm-hmm. that is more representative of the kinds of men that we were getting in the 80s before we got into like the Alexander Ludwig territory of contemporary cinema, where it's like, you have to be jacked. You've got to have a six pack. You've got to have 0% body fat. I will tell you that Divine fills his pants very well in the front <laughs> and back areas. And when we do see the outline of his penis in his pants, uh, I really, really enjoyed that personality aside. <laughs> well, it's good that he could bring that to the role. Was it Genie's already out of the bottle? Make a wish. They <laughs> both go, ew. Yeah. <laughs> I did like this. I also noticed I called this the hot tub scene a minute ago, and it is a waterbed scene. Oh, yes. Oh, okay. <laughs> I was, I was going to allow it. <laughs> I mean, you know, none of them are appropriate for a camp. So, what kind of a know. summer camp has waterbeds? <laughs> I wrote that in my notes earlier, and then they said it later. I was like, okay, I see. You're you. like, okay, well done. Well played. Right. That room you is also it, ginormous. Come on. I oh, know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's no bugs there. Like, that's not camp. Right. <laughs> they should be swatting at, like, mosquitoes all the time. Exactly. You take a shower and you're immediately sweaty again. Oh, God. That's a couple of those Friday the 13th, right? Everybody mm-hmm. just looks permanently wet. <laughs> okay. So Nancy, at this point, tells us Billy's backstory. And this is, I think, one of my favorite visual elements in the film is where we kind of get these translucent shards that descend from the ceiling as they get transported into this flashback. Mm-hmm. I agree with you, but I think my favorite comedic beat is when they all walk to the coffee table like zombies. It's such a subtle moment, but they, they, as soon as the flashback starts, they all just like arms drop. Not that they're floating, but they're just like zombie walking to their seat so they can tell this flashback. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it actually reminded me a little bit of like Cabin in the Woods where everybody has designated roles. And when Nancy tells the flashback, we go sit down. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, I love that movie so much. <laughs> Yeah. Well, and I think what I said earlier about how the girls would like get bigger boobs and smaller waistlines and like that was more in tune with a cabinet in the woods type meta, like how they have the mm-hmm. slutty girl and that like she wasn't slutty. She actually was smart, but they gave her hair dye that dumbed her down and made her blonde, you know? Yeah. Right. Yeah. I wonder like if I had read that in a book, I think I would have liked that a lot. Yeah. But I don't, I'm glad that they took that out because I don't need, I don't need to see Alia. Oh, now I forgot. Miss Showcat. Yeah, I want Showcat. Okay. It seems like it should be easy to remember. Yeah, I don't want to see her struggle with that because I love her. And she just always seems like she looks how she looks and she's happy with it. Right. The issue is that she would uh, she was sabotaging her friends to make them stay there. And mm-hmm. that, I think, would be a subplot that I don't need in this film. And I don't want to see it. So at the end, not to skip ahead, and we can talk about this later if it's better, but like I had a thought that they were going to do something like that at the end only with Max. When it was rewinding, I thought she was going to have the option of just starting the movie over again. And so it would be kind of like a Happy Death Day 2 choice, you know? Yeah. There are two alternate endings of this film, and I I will discuss them when we get there. Really? Mm -hmm. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) all right so we make our way through this flashback and in the process gertie ends up getting coated in blood and when they come (laughs) back to the present day she's still covered in blood i love that (laughs) (laughs) so this freaks out paula and kurt and they panic and they hop in the car and they just drive off and in the process they drive over duncan hit the totem pole and the car explodes killing them both hey this 
I mean, it's not my favorite scene. In the, I, it's not my favorite scene in the movie, but in terms of comedic timing and the editing, mm-hmm. this is probably one of the best sequences. I love them hitting Middle Dish. I love the, the visual of Divine's like body bent backwards on the <laughs> road. <laughs> it's like sped up to maximize the comedic potential. 100%. And then, I mean, we don't get a lot. Is it Chloe Bridges? Uh, Yes. I like Chloe Bridges. She's in Insatiable, and in, in that show, she gets a, a bouquet of flowers shoved down her throat. That's how she dies. It's really Ooh. great. Oh, God. I do like the minimal use we get over here, but I just love that fucking... The explosion timing is so good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, okay. it's, like, it's a little Groundhog's Day moment, you know? Yeah. A little bit, yeah. <laughs> so, because our final girl is dead, we have to nominate a new final girl, and at this point, Vicky repeatedly puts her foot in her mouth, so she not only tells these movie characters that they are not real, but then she dresses down Nancy and kind of says, like, oh, well, you are never going to realize your dreams, because you're just, like, the girl who is shy and quiet and plays the guitar mm-hmm. and then dies. Mm-hmm. And that's, like, a bitch moment, but again, yeah. it's, it's not, like, super bitch villainess or anything. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry. I know we're trying to get through it, but I did want to make one comment a little ways back about the fag thing. Dude, that is like 10 minutes ago. <laughs> no, no, no. I, 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 I know. But I just like, again, like we don't like that word. What do we think about two gay men writing the word fag into this film? I think because they're talking about an 80s homage. And this particular type of character. Yeah, like... It does undermine, I think, the comedicness of this character. And maybe this is just me taking it a little bit more personally because he's obviously also super misogynistic. But yeah. mm-hmm. to me, it's just like, yeah, you're right not to like this person because, of course, he would be using that language. Yeah. And then he dies like five minutes later. <laughs> yeah. And that's kind of how I took it, too. Although, and I mean, I guess, like, as a woman, I don't know if I necessarily have, <laughs> can say how I feel about it, but it's. Yeah. Like, there's a moment where, like, you still hear the word, you know, and the word could still be triggering. I see what they were trying to do, and the rest of the conversation, I think, kind of bears that out, but it still exists, and I don't mm-hmm. love it. Also, this is a nitpick, but, I mean, there's a tiny bit of appropriation here, too, with Billy's mask and the oh, yeah. totem pole. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I think, I like, I can kind of give that a little bit of grace for just being five years ago, and I think, like... We've kind of progressed to kind of recognize that stuff a little bit more now, but yeah. And we've talked about this in our Patreon episode, Joe and Lovecraft Country. But I think there's two groups of people that I think people forget: it's Jewish people and it's Indigenous people. Mm-hmm. There are very much like anti-Semitic and anti-Indigenous. What's the... also there isn't like that. an official term, but like things like that get, slide by a lot mm-hmm. past like PC censors. And I don't even like saying that because it sounds like it's too like superficial or too official or whatever. But as a society, we've been trained to look past those things because we think, oh, like that's just how it is. Yeah. And that's not the case. So I'm glad you actually mm-hmm. brought that up, Jim, because, yeah, that's honestly not even something I would have thought about as like, oh, like anti-Indigenous people like, with this mask. And you are right. And so, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and that's <laughs> yes. I'm watching um Fargo right now and that's something that they're doing some interesting things with that. So I, I think oh, it's yeah. becoming more like in the fore. And it could also be like that's one of the things I do at my day job. It's just like, can we actually use like we shouldn't say spirit animal anymore, you know? Yeah, exactly. That's, you know. Right. But I mean, I just don't think we were there five years ago as a society. No. We're still not nearly where we need to be, but we are learning and we, we are, are growing. Some and of when us. you do better or when you know better, you do better. Exactly. Yeah. 
It's interesting because on my other podcasts, I'm reading a bunch of YA books and watching YA movies, and they're really particularly bad for using certain types of no longer acceptable language. And I've watched movies from the 2010s where you're kind of like, oh, well, we didn't say that anymore. Like, we didn't say the R word in Mm. the last 10 years. Mm. And it's like, it's popping up in movies from four years ago. And you're just like, oh, okay. Wow. Wowie. Wow, wow, wow. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, and it's one of those things where, like, I can understand, especially if it's something that was, like, it's a time period kind of thing, but it's still there, and you still hear it, it still hurts, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> okay, so at this point, we get to work making traps and creating weapons. This is where Vicky apologizes to Max. I know we've talked about it a little bit, but I do think that this is a scene that we just wouldn't get in virtually any other iteration of this film. Mm-hmm. I agree. And I identify with Vicky quite a bit because her saying, Max, when your mom died, you became a different person. You cut me out of your life. Even saying that, that sounds selfish. Oh, Mm -hmm. your mom died, but really you fucked up with how you handled your friendship with me. But it's also a valid thing to feel and say. Mm -hmm. And I like that the movie seems to take this approach as like, it's okay to say that. And it's also not wrong. I'm not saying Max was wrong in doing what she did, because honestly, my, my takeaway with that was maybe because she spent so much time with her mom and Vicky that being around Vicky reminded her too much of her life with her mom. Mm-hmm. Mm. And that's not explicitly stated, but that's very much the impression that I got, which is why she went on to different things. And I like that the movie gives us this moment for this character of this quote unquote bitch girl that, yeah, Joe, as you said, we would not get in another movie. Yeah. Yeah, and it's like there's there's so much of a focus on the mother and the daughter relationship, but like those two women don't exist only in that relationship with each other. Mm-hmm, you know, that mm-hmm. relationship ripples out. And I like the acknowledgement that Vicky didn't lose her mother, but she did lose something with that. Yeah. And it did right. affect her life as well. And nobody was wrong. It's just one of those things that happens and you just deal with it or you don't. And, you know. That's the thing, right, though? Like in a situation like this where everyone's feelings are valid. Mm-hmm. Max is is valid in saying like you reminded me of my of life with my mother. I we needed to get away from that, but she didn't communicate that. Vicky mm-hmm. is valid in saying you abandoned me when your mom died, and I felt bad about it, so I reacted in a negative way. No mm-hmm. one's wrong in that scenario. Mm-hmm. And granted, there could be a longer conversation here in the film about that, but I at least like that the steps the movie takes, and we can make our own interpretation of it. But it's a very sweet scene that honestly made me tear up too because I just felt bad for Vicky. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And it's unusually placed in the film too because this literally comes after a montage of us preparing weapons. Like this movie should be ramping up to the finale, but because mm-hmm. it's choosing to prioritize relationships, we get that. And then we get the scene where Nancy gives Max her friendship bracelet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like these are character beats and moments that. In any other film, it would be like, no, we got to get that the fuck out of there because we got to get to the climax. Like, we need violence and action. Mm. And I think maybe that's where the PG-13 rating comes in handy here. Because, yes, in an R-rated film, they would be saying, we need to get to the gore. We need to get Mm -hmm. to the kills. Mm -hmm. And because this movie isn't focused on that, and granted, this is not to say that a movie that is gory or an R-rated slasher film can't focus on characters. They just don't normally. They don't, yeah. All too often, they don't. And I'm sure there is one that does it right. And look at Scream. Scream does have emotional beats for Sydney, Mm -hmm. But it's not often we get that. And so while you could make this movie with more gore and stuff, 
I think it works because I think maybe having that with the director is being like, okay, cool. Well, we're not going to focus on that. Cool. Then that's fine. We're going to focus on these moments. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's yeah. what makes it work. Mm-hmm. Also want to shout out the line delivery of Bachanka Donk. Because <laughs> <laughs> that cracked me up. And then it was just a straight deadpan of like the weird disease where you're always on your period. I'm like, oh my goodness. <laughs> that's hilarious. Uh... Also, don't do that to your friends. That's not <laughs> Um, yeah, so while this is all happening, we're also trying to prevent Tina from taking off her clothes. So she has been taped <laughs> up, she's got oven mitts on, and it turns out that she's also taken nearly all of Vicky's Adderall, and she is <laughs> tweaking out. She would have died if she took 30 yeah. Adderall pills. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, she's going to die anyway. That's true. I know, but I'm just saying, like, her heart would have popped out of her chest. <laughs> I mean, the performance makes you think that it could happen at any moment. See, in an R-rated movie, that probably would have happened. Yeah, Mm -hmm. she wouldn't even get to strip tease and just be like, she just dies. No, no, that would have been the climax. Like, instead of, like, running away and having her head fall in a bear trap, which is funny. Mm. When she pulled her top up, like, her heart would have popped out of her chest. Right. (laughs) I do think this is my favorite, like, analysis of the trope. I love that they called it Operation Booby Trap. I yeah. love that that's like the cue of it, you know? I I, just, I thought it was like, yeah, this, that's really clever. I enjoyed that. And there's a so lot of good, good little ticks that uh, Trimber is doing as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. As you said before, Jen, this striptease performance is kind of one of a kind. It really is. I mean, I guess that's what happens when you take all your Adderall and then have to like, strip <laughs> a life jacket off, you know? <laughs> So safe sex tape from us, don't take 30 Adderall and then try to do a sexy strip tease. Exactly. Yeah, you're going to need a life jacket for that. <laughs> I did, I really enjoyed her performance here. Yeah. The trap does work. The tit reveal, which of course we don't get to see because we're PG-13, does work. Titanic says hello. <laughs> you got to use it judiciously. It's like slapping its hand on the glass of the window and like fogging slide down. Exactly. We see K-Wins titties in that movie, but it's also a more... Um, it's tasteful. It's tasteful, yeah. <laughs> it, it... <laughs> Your eyes diverted by the giant diamond also. I do love that line, though, earlier that she is like, why does he hate my boob? Is it because they're too small? <laughs> <laughs> I do, too. <laughs> Boobs. Oh, yeah, my goodness. <laughs> ah, so good. So th- this sequence, though, this is probably the epitome of, like, showy camera work, but I really do love this entire sequence. Mm-hmm. Me too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so Tina immediately dies by falling into the bear trap, and then we get the <laughs> totem launch that hits Billy into the antlers on the door. At this point, Blake, who we've not actually talked about, he's the Gertie doppelganger who is played by Tori and Thompson. Mm-hmm. And he goes down to retrieve the machete and, of course, just immediately gets hacked up, as we all anticipated. I mean, I, I do appreciate that they don't give him, like, the token. Like, he, he doesn't have any of, like, the token black character qualities that you would expect from something, like, mm-hmm. from an in an 80s slasher movie. But, the jive talk? No. Yeah, but, but, but this movie also doesn't, like, really do a lot with him other than, like, oh, yeah, like, Gertie, we both like pens. We both like flair. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I feel like, like, in a way that seems not necessarily intentional, you know? Yeah. Like, yeah. I don't know if they're necessarily trying to make a commentary on that. I think that just happened. Yeah. I feel like this is a character that wasn't written as black. They just cast a black actor in the role, which is right. good for them. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. 
It just happens to be the only black character in the movie. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You, you almost wonder if they could get rid of a character or two, but I think because they want everybody to have an alternative, they mm-hmm. feel like, okay, well, we got to double up, but it also then doubles your cast. Right. But of course, we're getting rid of them right now. So <laughs> Blake right. is done, <laughs> Tina's done, and of course, Billy just pulls himself off the antlers, so they start shooting him with flaming arrows. That doesn't quite work, so they run upstairs, and this is where the trap fails, and Vicky and Gertie are pinned under a bookcase. Gertie is impaled in the back by the machete, mm-hmm. and then Vicky sacrifices herself to blow mm-hmm. Billy up. Okay, and this is again where you give the moment. The moment when Vicky grabs Gertie's hand and like does she like give, yeah. she, she doesn't give up, but she like chooses to just stay with her, even though I mean she's also pinned under this bookcase. Mm-hmm. This is a moment that also made me tear up to just watch them like accept their fates. Me too, and knowing yeah. that they kind of had that reconciling moment before, I feel like mm-hmm. kind of makes it a little a little more meaningful. And this is the hour like we're two thirds of the way through. Like, we're we're entering Act Three now. Like it's just it's a really sweet moment, and obviously a lot of the attention goes to the Max Nancy slash Amanda stuff. But this is one of those like few moments that were just really like it's a gut punch. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think, again, in another movie, what would have happened is Vicky would have told Max, just go, it's fine. We wouldn't have got her grab Gertie's hand. Like, mm-hmm. that's the emotional beat that works best right? on top of the kind of conventional, like, just go, just leave me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so we're down to three, and this is when the movie changes into slow motion. <laughs> and I couldn't figure that out at first. But I know. Then once I did, I was like, oh, okay, I love you, movie. Well done. <laughs> I will say that shot of Billy leaping in slow motion from the burning upstairs window is fucking good. Dude, that might be my favorite shot of the movie. <laughs> it's so cool. Even as he's like chasing them through the woods and we've got the synth music going and he's fully in gore. Nope. Fully in gorge. Oh, dear. <laughs> yeah. So he's on fire. He's chasing them. They fall into a ditch and they use Nancy's flashback abilities to get them out of their tricky situation. I do love that. Billy is just hit by the car immediately and loses his machete in the flashback. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I also love how they knock the letters over. I thought that was a nice little touch. Yeah, it's it, because they, they hinted at it earlier when they have to step over the summer 1957 or whatever letters. Like, that mm-hmm. was really fun. Like, I, I, love, I love all that shit with the title cards. <laughs> Me too, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that's where I think the smartness of the comedy isn't at the expense of the really tired tropes that we would expect. Like, they're not poking fun at the 1980s. They're actually being meta in a smart way. Yes. Mm -hmm. Because I will say, we haven't brought it up to this point. I don't know if we want to introduce it this late in the movie. But I do feel like this movie is comparable to... Ah, shit. The backwoods comedy one with the two idiots who inadvertently... Oh, Tucker and Dale versus Evil. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I feel like this is a more successful film, not just because of the heart, but because the comedy is smart. Well, here, here's so the thing. Because, again, like I said before, this is more of a parody than a satire. But it's a parody that likes what it's parodying. Mm-hmm. As opposed to, say, something like Scary Movie, which is something that's parodying things that it doesn't seem to like. Or now, understand. I, yes. I enjoy the Scary Movie. Well, I, I enjoyed the first three. But... Those movies are very much like, they think that what they're parodying is stupid. Whereas this movie and Tucker and Dale, they seem to be made by people who have a respect for the genre. Mm-hmm. Whereas right. the Wayans brothers don't have that respect. <laughs> no. So yeah. I think that's the difference there. But I, I agree. I think it is a good comparison with that movie. Mm-hmm. 
And I think you see that a lot in Duncan's character, too. You know, he never mm-hmm. seems... And I really kind of identified with him a lot. Because it's like, oh my gosh, I wonder if that's what I would do if I were in the situation. But yeah, there's like, with Scary Movie, I'm not really a fan of those. Because I think there's just a mean a mean-spiritedness oh, yeah. to it. Yeah, yeah. It just makes me uncomfortable, mm-hmm. you know? And I don't feel that here. I mean, like, look, Joe and I will eventually cover the first... At least the first Scary Movie one day. Because there's so much homophobia in that movie. Mm-hmm. I still like it. But I'm fully aware of its problems. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's problematic with the capital Q. But... Yeah. Uh... <laughs> doesn't mean it's not worth looking at right yeah hey you got to talk about that kind of stuff so that like people can understand it and we know why it's problematic you know right exactly you're speaking our (laughs) our message okay so uh we're in this flashback we've got billy's machete we once again see the teenage version of him get burned but this time we actually see where he runs off to so we've got the final location where we're going to have a showdown. And this is where Nancy ends the flashback. Chris gets slashed. Nancy gets abducted. Yeah. Yeah. Honestly, this is kind of the low part of the film. Yeah. A little bit for me. This was very advancing the plot. I know. Yeah. Yeah. Like we, we've got to do a and B so that we can get to C. and you're like, okay, can we just find a way to maybe hustle it along? Like Trace, when you said, Oh, this is about the hour mark. I was like, this is where I feel it. But there's not much left. Right. <laughs> but, but there's the whole 30 minutes left. <laughs> yeah. But this is the right. only part where I thought, I, I didn't quite believe it, because I was like, why wouldn't he kill Nancy? What's the reason oh, for him taking her, you know? Yeah. 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 Also, that terrible place is gigantic. <laughs> and, and there's a church that shows up at some point, too. Yeah. yeah. What's going on here? It kind of feels like the movie is abandoning its own principles so that it can give us... Like, it's trying to set things up, but it Mm -hmm. also isn't doing a good job of addressing its mission statement, which is to, like, poke fun and evoke the ideas of the original films. I don't think this is the case, but I also wonder if it's maybe a commentary on the Friday the 13th remake when he keeps fucking um, Amanda Rigetti alive because she looks like his mom, so he, Mm. like, chains her in his tunnels. Oh, God. (laughs) Hmm. I would love to think that that's what they were intentionally doing. (laughs) Let's go with that. Let's go with that. But that's also a reference to Friday the 13th Part 2 when Ginny, like, wears his mother's sweater and, like, tries to, like, hypnotize him for, like, five minutes. But, yeah, it is lazy. It doesn't make any sense. But you could say that about many a slasher film. That's true. And I am totally willing to abandon that kind of stuff if it gets me the emotional moment that I want. Which this this does. does. Exactly. So I can suspend my disbelief for that. Mm -hmm. So one of the good things about this part is Chris just keeps telling Max, like, no, she's dead. You have to let her go, whatever. And Max is just like, fuck you, and straight up leaves him behind. Yes, good for her. I wrote in my notes, Chris, shut the fuck up. She's not dead. I don't know why he didn't die, to be honest. I don't know why he didn't die. I know. Because you need that love interest. (laughs) Maybe. Well, I was going to say they needed him for the sequel, but one... They didn't know if they were going to get it. Okay. Right. Still when, when we get to these alternate endings, that might make more sense. Okay. Okay. Uh, mm. Put a pin in that. We'll come back to it. Yeah. I know. I'm dying to know, though. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So Max and Nancy do this big battle with Billy. Max gets stabbed. And Nancy, at this point, realizes that Max won't be able to win as long as she is alive. So I'm obviously glossing over a lot of the action, but that's yeah. fine. Yeah. This is cue my ugly cry. 
Yeah, so this is really when we're building up to the emotional catharsis. So Max ends up telling Nancy about Amanda, about how she thinks of her as a mother figure. And as Nancy goes to leave, Max actually gets the opportunity to tell her that she loves her, which is the thing that in real life, Max never got to do. And this is Farmiga's, I mean, I, I literally just got like a chill right now. This is Farmiga's best moment in the film. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The looks they give each other, Nancy, like, making the conscious decision to make, to be a sacrifice, like, Mm -hmm. with this girl that she doesn't know, it's so fucking heartwarming and touching and sad, Mm -hmm. and it's such a good metaphor for, again, for this girl, like, after three years of finally letting go of the memory, I mean, not the memory, but, like, letting go of this hold that she has on her mother, so she can finally move on with her life, which is why, again, when we're talking about a sequel, like, I'm like, okay, well, it would be, for her, like, a post-that emotional mm-hmm. moment which i think yeah. would work with that and that final look they give each other and then again they're looking at each other the whole time while she's doing this little strip tease it's mm-hmm. uh and it's the song oh my goodness mm-hmm. yeah yeah and i loved how this like malin ackerman like she actually feels like a character like a real person in this oh, yes. movie and i yeah, love because yeah. i think so many times like when it's a mother-daughter story it's like you've got one or the other and you're either focusing on the mom as a mom or the daughter as a daughter and oh, i love yeah. that we get both of that but it, it, it's be okay so my mom always told me like, when we were watching disney movies as a kid every time she'd be like the mama always dies because in every movie the mom is always dead the dad's the one that's alive <laughs> and this is one of the honestly the only time we've gotten a movie where the mama does die but like we still get her yeah i mean i'm sure there's something else like this where you get something like that in some kind of weird sci-fi way but this is a, a really really good subversion of that typical narrative trope of the mom being dead and the daughter being traumatized by it yeah, mm-hmm. it's like the part that really got me this time was when she was talking about like you had a daughter and you were a great mom and mm-hmm. it was kind of like really honoring this life that she had and said, you know, I was a movie star and I got to have all of these good things and now it's time to pass the torch and that's okay because I did have this life and it reminded me a lot of Arrival this time. I don't know if you saw that. <gasps> oh. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> oh, that is good. Okay. I saw Arrival hung over at a press screening at Fantastic Fest at 8 a.m. in the morning. Oh, wow. I was not in the mood to watch it. I, like, literally, I saw, actually, oh, oh, I saw it with Mike Vanderbilt, who is on the uh, Halloweenies podcast now. (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm. And he did not emotionally connect with it like I did. And so literally when the credits rolled, he looks at me and I am like, I have tears <laughs> running down my face. And like, I held it in. Like, you know, Jen, how you were saying, like, you know, when you cry, you try to like, just kind of hold it in a bit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The lip quivers a little. Yes. As soon as the credits rolled, I just went. <gasps> <laughs> and he looks at me and goes, oh, you really felt that. And I was like, didn't you? <laughs> I'm sorry. You're dead inside. I know. Oh, yeah, I think I ugly cried in that one, too, because it just, like, was like, oh, my God. And You're I so, oh, Adams. that's such a good comparison. <laughs> I hesitate to be hyperbolic, but this is the kind of scene where it makes me believe in the magic of movies. Mm-hmm. Like, I connect so emotionally with these two women, the music cue coming back up. Honestly, Malin Ackerman is such a fucking star She's in so this good. scene. Mm-hmm. It all works, and it feels, I think you you said earlier, Jen, it's almost like lightning in a bottle. Like, I don't know how they could have done this differently to make it better, because I think it just comes off so perfectly executed. Mm-hmm. It's just a great culmination to what this movie has been building up to. Yeah, it's like a really good example of, like, the parts coming together to, like, transcend and become yes. more than what they were. Yeah. 
I mean, I know your parents are alive, but like, mm-hmm. I haven't experienced the loss of someone as close as a parent. I've lost grandparents. I've lost um, like grand aunts and uncles like that I have been close to, but not someone like a parent. And mm-hmm. as someone who can't intimately relate to that because I haven't experienced that exact same thing, this still really, really like touched me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I agree. Yeah. I think it's doing it so well that you don't need to have had that personal experience to still have it work for you. Right. And as I mentioned earlier too, like the long, cause like you know, we don't see the actual like stab, but it's like, it kind of cuts away. And then we get that long shot against like the gorgeous, like purple pink sky and the lightning and whatever. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But then you see the silhouette as she just falls off the machete and it's just like, <sighs> and it's the music too. It's the, the perfect song. And I can't imagine it with like a prayer. No. Yeah. I mean, I, I can, but I, mm, no, yeah. I just don't want it. <laughs> I, I love Like a Prayer. I fucking I love Like a Prayer. And I will confess that when I first saw this movie, I had never heard the song Betty Davis Eyes, so I had no connection to it. Mm-hmm. But now when I hear, like, if I ever heard the, that song, like, I immediately associate it with this movie. Right. And if it was Like a Prayer, that wouldn't be the case. No, mm-hmm. because you've heard that song a million times. Mm-hmm. Right. I think Like a Prayer would have worked with the car scene really well but i don't think it would have worked here i think we would you would have been thinking about madonna you know yeah oh yes that's that's a good idea that's a good point that's a good point yeah okay so nancy is sadly deceased and at this point max is reawakened as the final girl so she just fully gets up she doesn't really seem to have any injuries anymore she picks up the machete she delivers this iconic camp blood bath line you messed with the wrong virgin uh, <laughs> fucked with the wrong virgin this is the one fuck in the movie mm. there we go i mean a little wordplay this felt very scott pilgrimy to me uh yeah yeah because we definitely got some wire foo when he's hitting her around mm. well and like like kind of her like reboot you know it was like oh i'm healed now mm-hmm. <laughs> right this fight scene didn't totally work for me yeah. I think it goes on a little too long, but yeah. I, I think that's the, because again, we're coming off of this emotional climax, and so mm-hmm. we've already peaked, and anything yeah. after this is going to be bad. I, honestly, I think I would have preferred if she had just quilled him, like, decapitated him very quickly, mm-hmm. as opposed to this kind of, like, minute-long fight scene that we get. Right, yeah. It's just, like, an immediate thing. She just chucks the machete at him, and he's done. Right. I also think it would have been a bit, for comedic purposes, that might have worked even better. But mm. I think maybe they're trying to, like, again, extend the climax. Yeah. I think so. I also appreciate that they, I mean, it's very obviously not released in 3D, but they do use 3D and slow motion in a way that reminded me about some of those high points of the Friday the 13th franchise, where they were trying to go for broke with 3D and slow motion and kind of fancy things to lure fans in. Yeah, mm-hmm. I was getting a little of that vibe too. Yeah, yeah. So she she does eventually decapitate him, and the storm clears almost immediately. And as Chris <laughs> joins her on the horizon, the credits of the movie play out in the sky. And I, I love really this. Liked that. Not so much that Chris was back in the movie, but I did really like the credits. Yeah. Oh, Chris, we didn't miss you. My favorite touch is though is that MPAA card at the very end <laughs> for the R-rated movie that this is not <laughs> right. <laughs> Just a gentle fuck you. <laughs> uh, okay, so they end up clutching at each other. The reel ends, and we get kind of like a behind the scenes as the movies switch over. They awaken in the hospital, and Duncan, Gertie, and Vicky are back. Max still has her friendship bracelet. Mm-hmm. And then this is where we get Billy's theme song playing again. And 
The killer jumps through the hospital door. Our protagonist realizes that they're in the sequel. Can't let that <laughs> to Cruel Summer. So let's cue Bananarama and do some outtakes. You know what, though? If we ever do get a sequel and it's Can't Bloodbath to Cruel Summer, we can at least use Taylor Swift's song, Cruel Summer, in that movie. That's right. No. Mm, no. <laughs> so your alternate ending. So basically, this is the third ending they have. The first one, it is just Max and Chris wake up in the hospital. No, none of the friends are alive. They are yeah. actually officially dead. That was a surprise for me. I didn't think the movie was going to walk that back. Right. And so we get them, like, whatever. And then, yeah, they see the whole, like, doctor and nurse, like, the melons or the, the, the rounds thing. Yeah. And then Billy shows up. I love that the tell was Tab and the Rubik's Cube, too. <laughs> yes, yes. And so that's all. So all, all those cut to the same. It's just, yeah, we're missing, like, the friends. And it's just uh, Max and Chris. That did not test well. So what they mm. did was then they, they did the reshoot with the friends surviving. Okay. But instead of doing the doctor and the nurse with, like, the rounds, they actually see Adam Devine's character, who's in a full body cast in a wheelchair, flirting with the nurse. And then yep. Billy comes in. Yeah, I could see that because that's one of the outtakes. And I was like, where is that? Yes, mm -hmm. that didn't test well either. So they used a mix of stupid. the two where they have the friends alive. But then instead of Adam Devine, they have the nurse and doctor doing the round stuff. Hmm. I honestly, I think I might have preferred the first option because I do think it kind of undercuts... I mean, I know we didn't have a, a ton of emotional weight in the deaths, but I do feel like this kind of backtracks some of the Vicky Gertie stuff. Mm. I don't disagree, but I think after re-losing the mother, I think I personally needed the... You needed some happy? The happiness mm -hmm. of the friends, like actually being alive now granted they'll probably die again in the sequel and so i hope that that, that that the rules that that establishes is that like they just have to make it through and then they'll all end up back in the real world maybe because again that's the thing there's only two of these camp bloodbath movies as we know so what happens when the second movie ends you know mm -hmm. right mm. someone has taken their love of trilogies too far <laughs> <laughs> so i mean what, what do you think like what do you prefer or like any of these endings I love exactly what they did. I think that's what I prefer. I, yeah. I think I'm with you. I needed a little bit of happy. And there's something that I'm connecting the friend reveal that they're still there to. And I can't put my finger on it. Mm -hmm. But there was part of me that was thinking, is this all going to be, is this all going to turn out to be not real at all? And this was just her processing watching her mother's movie. Oh, if that was, <laughs> if that was the ending, I would have rioted. Oh my God. Can you imagine? It's just, it's the British version of the descent. <laughs> Yes, yes. Mm, yeah, I've got a lot of thoughts about that ending. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I did really love it. And I loved the ending. And it's just such a fun little um, like nod to horror fans. They're like, oh, yeah, it's so much better than the original. You know, it was just a nice little moment. And sure. that it takes place in a hospital. That's very Halloween, too, right? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Which, I mean, I guess if you're going to do the like that, you could go into the other franchise because this was very Friday the 13th. And mm -hmm. right. it could have yeah. been another. You got a lot of nurses to pick off there. Oh, my God. You have to sit for Amiga like drugged out the whole time just in a bed because she has a bad wig. <laughs> just like Jamie Lee Curtis. <laughs> yes. yes. When she does like three things in that movie. <laughs> I mean, I still love her though. But... Yeah, I wish I did. Oh. <laughs> uh, Miss Farm, we're going to have your hospital gown and gurney over here. <laughs> and you just get to lay there with your eyes closed for the next 92 minutes. And just cash that check. <laughs> But yeah, uh, so final thoughts on final the final girls, Jen. 
I love it. There are a couple of things that don't totally work for me. Um, and like as we're kind of dissecting it and, and talking about each individual element, I think I can see a couple more of the seams. But it's such a feel good slasher. Like slashers are a big one of my comfort horror movie genres. But like this one, it just it's like a warm blanket. You know, I still get that horror element, but but the stakes are low and it, you get a good cry when you need one, you know, So mm-hmm. I just loved mm-hmm. it. Yeah, I agree. I think there's a lot of people who aren't going to connect with this film because it's just not delivering what they think they want. And Mm -hmm. if you can accept the film for what it's delivering and accept that it is more about the laughs, like some gentle laughs, as well as the emotional component, then this film really does work. It's got a little bit of laggy pacing in there, but for the most part, yeah, this is like a warm blanket kind of film. I mean, I really eagerly revisited it and liked it more than the previous times that I had seen it. So I think it's also a film that ages well. Mm -hmm. I agree with that too. Yeah. I mean, even five years later, like it feels very fresh and you know, there's not a ton of queer content in this film, but I am glad that we get to cover a film that has two queer men who are in a relationship together giving us this and they are giving us something else. Uh, It's a Russell Crowe movie that I think is being produced by Kevin Williamson coming out maybe next year. We'll see what happens with COVID. (laughs) So, I mean, nevertheless, like, this is their film. They they did create the USA TV series Queen of the South, which I've never seen. But based on this alone, I'm excited to see what else, what other films they have for us going forward. It's definitely a film that really is an emotional gut punch, but it still leaves you feeling happy after it, which is why I think you need the ending that they give us. I get right. what you're saying, Joe, where you're like, I think it it feels more real to have the original ending. But I do think just for the sake of, I think this is a movie where I I don't want to feel bad walking out of this movie. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, but yeah, so yeah, that is the final girls, everybody, and we hope you enjoyed it. Uh, but before we announce what we're covering next week, Jen, do you have anything you'd like to plug or talk about? I would, yeah. So um, for Losers Club, we're doing lots of fun stuff, and I was just on the Rose Matter episode, which was kind of a heavy one, but I, I'm, I'm pretty proud of it. Um, and then um, they are actually right now recording their Salem Horror Festival um, segment oh. or the episode. So we're reuniting the kids from the original It miniseries. So that's going to be really exciting. Oh, I saw that announcement. That's super cool. I know. I know. I I'm, I'm, can't wait to see how it turns out. And then, um, oh, and we're also doing a new thing um, where we look at the books that inspired Stephen King also. So we're going to be doing an episode on The Haunting of Hill House, the Shirley Mm. Jackson novel. So that's going to be fun. And then as far as psychoanalysis goes, um, it is October. And our theme for this month is PTSD. And we started with the episode on The Descent. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that would have dropped on the first day of October. So that's available now. Um, and then we're also going to be looking at Sydney's arc in Scream 1, 2, and 3 Ooh, and how yeah. trauma yep. plays into that, which I am so excited to talk about. Yeah. Um, And we're also starting a new thing because we tend to talk about a lot of um, kind of heavy things on that show, which, you know, that's that's part of why I wanted to do it, because I think there are some heavy things that people avoid talking about and also avoid dealing with. But we're starting comfort horror mini episodes where we just talk about like the movies that we love to watch that make us feel good. Kind of like like I would put this in that category. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And so we just um, have an episode with Michael Rothman from Losers Club and Halloween. He's talking about Halloween, of course um and then we're going to do another one on um treehouse of horror simpsons episode <laughs> oh yay that's fun yeah 
Yeah, so lots of fun stuff coming up in October. Oh, and we are going to be um, doing an episode for Salem Horror Fest as well, where we look at Laurie Strode's PTSD manifestation in H2O and Halloween 18. Oh, I'm glad you're doing both of them because both of those films tackle the same subject matter, like very differently. And I'm actually fascinated to see how y'all talk about that. Yeah, and there's like, I don't really come down on one movie or the other, although I do kind of lean in one way. But I think, yeah, it it shows different ways. And I wonder if that's just 20 plus years of understanding, Mm -hmm. you know? For sure. Quite possibly. So, lots of exciting stuff. Um, Where can people find you on socials? You can find me at Jen Ferratu on all of the socials. (laughs) Nice. Well... (laughs) If you want to get in touch with us, you can reach us on Twitter and Instagram at Horror Queers. And you can also join our Facebook Horror Queers group to hang out with other listeners. If you have a moment, please rate it and review us on your podcatcher of choice, although Apple Podcasts is always a good one. If you want Horror Queers merch, please check out our store at TeePublic. Just search for Horror Queers on TeePublic. That's T-E-E-Public.com. And if you want even more Horror Queers, please support us and the show by becoming a patron at Patreon.com slash Horror Queers. We are now in October, which means we've got lots of stuff planned for the Patreon. We're going crazy with episodes on Ratched, Books of Blood, The Haunting of Bly Manor, and Ben Wheatley's re-adaptation of Daphne du Maurier's famed novel Rebecca. Plus, an audio commentary on Halloween H2O to close out the month to tide you over for not being able to go to a Halloween party this year. Mm-hmm. Look at us. We're all doing H2O, baby. Are, I, I love that movie so much. <laughs> I do, too. I think I I don't go one way or the other either. I like things about both movies with 2018 versus H2O. Mm. One thing that H2O has going for it is that like 82 minute runtime. Yes, yeah. yes, uh huh. <laughs> it also has Josh Hartnett going for it, which is yeah. a big plus. <laughs> and also, uh, Jen, to tie up with you, we are also doing Salem Horror Fest. We are going to be talking about Copycat, the 1995 Sigourney Weaver Holly Hunter film, which Joe and I both love, and everyone else should too. I love it too, and I think people don't talk about it nearly as much as they should. They I'm don't. So excited. <laughs> and we go into it a little bit in the episode, but it's because it was unfairly compared to Silence of the Lambs, and it had mm. the misfortune of opening a month after seven. Mm. So there's a lot of things there, but again, we have lots of things to talk about, and we have a really fun guest on it, and I think it's a really good recording. So if you haven't purchased your badge to Salem Horror Fest, you should do so. Well, now, because I think Salem Horror Fest is probably going on right now. <laughs> yes, we're actually in the middle. So our session was last weekend. But if you get the all-access pass, you'll still be able to catch it. There you go. And we also have another appearance at the Nightstream Film Festival. That's a, uh, an amalgamation of five different horror film festivals that take place across the country. They are doing their virtual fest this year. And they kind of join forces like the Power Rangers. And uh, <laughs> we are going to be discussing Tarsim Singh's The Cell in that yeah. episode. It's another future candidate for psychoanalysis, Jen. Yes. 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 100%. <laughs> Lots to pick about it right there. <laughs> We've recorded both of these episodes already, and um, I think they're really, really fun. So please give them a listen, everyone. Or go buy your badges for that shit, too. Um, with all that money you'll have. <laughs> <laughs> well, they're both really great festivals, and I think they're packing a huge punch with the films and the kinds of panels that they're offering, but they're mm-hmm. each doing something really unique. We're really excited to be a part of both. But, you know... You're not going to be going out to your fancy Halloween party, so throw some mm-hmm. of that extra cash to these festivals so that they can, you know, get their money back and stay in business in the future. 100%, because there's a bunch of good people that run these festivals. Yeah. <sighs> All right, Joe, what are we talking about next week? 
Well, because Netflix is so kindly delivering us a new version, we thought we would travel back in time to check out the first Rebecca Trace. So we're going to hop in our time machines all the way back to 1940 and check out our very first Hitchcock film with the original Rebecca. I'm super excited for this. Everyone, if y'all have not heard of Rebecca... um, What? (laughs) You clearly didn't go to my high school because I had to read that book my freshman year of high school. Yeah, the author is Daphne du Maurier. She's the woman who wrote the short story The Birds, which was obviously also adapted into a Hitchcock film. I've never seen Rebecca, and I'm really, really, really excited to watch it and check out these awesome Criterion Blu-ray extra features. She's a fancy bitch. <laughs> I am a fancy bitch. But uh, we do have a great lesbian character in it. And uh, I'm sorry, a lesbian coded character in it. Because we mm-hmm. we're got we dealing with uh, the Hayes Code. <laughs> yeah, it's 1940. Ain't nobody coming out and proud in the 1940s. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, everyone get your Laurence Olivier and Joan Fontaine on. Until next week, though, we can cross out the final girls. Yes, and cross out horror queers. Her hair is hollow gold lips sweet surprise her hands are never cold she's got Betty Davis eyes she'll turn her music on you you won't have to think twice she's pure as New York snow she got Betty Davis eyes and she tease you made it to the end of another bloody disgusting podcast congratulations if you like our programming consider searching for other bloody disgusting podcasts such as creepy horror queers the boo crew scp archives nightlight margaret's garden nightmare on film street and more <laughs>